You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. First so, Timothy chapter 2, verses <coughs> 8 through 15. I want to read the passage. Please follow along with me. And then uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in. 1 Timothy 1, or I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 2, 8. Paul says, I desire then that every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women, who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. <laughs> Father, um, and my first response as I read this text, even after studying it uh, over the last few weeks and preparing to preach it, my, my, my response this morning is like, really? <laughs> Could you spread out all of these controversial statements? I allow a woman to learn. I don't allow a woman to teach. A woman will be saved through childbearing. Like I, I would prefer, Father, that you would have spread those out, not even just in different verses, but in different books. <laughs> so my heart, honestly, Lord, is really humbled uh, this morning uh, that you would give me the task to preach this and that you would give us the privilege of hearing it. So, uh, Lord, I also get this distinct feeling that you, uh, in your providence, I would desire that you would spread these things out in different books, that you put them maybe in the same place to catch our attention. That you are such a good father that you wouldn't uh, want us to stay asleep if our hearts are not aligned well. So, Father, I do pray that you would just come that you would take the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth, that you would purify them, and that you would uh, use what I say to be just your very word, and that you would use our time together to realign our hearts um, with what you want. So trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. I uh, grew up in a single-parent home with uh, my mom and my sister. My mom was my primary teacher growing up. My sister was one of my best friends. Uh, we grew up in an old white farmhouse on a hill near Lincoln, Nebraska, and spent a lot of time running around in the trees, playing with my mom's chickens and ducks and guineas and peacocks and dogs. I mean, there was rabbits, there was horses, everything you could possibly think of. Well, my, my sister and I spent a lot of time together. 
My mom, though, grew up in a house where her father abused her in every possible way imaginable. My dad uh, left when I was five years old. Although later in my teen years, my dad did reconcile with uh, my sister and I as he began to follow the Lord. And then he, he married a really godly a lady that's been a, a huge blessing to our family over the years. And what I'm about to share, I don't share to cast a negative light on our family. Um, I'll give you a purpose for what I'm about to share in a moment. Uh, after the divorce um, between my mom my dad, my mom bounced from one dude to the next. Um, if you could maybe step into her shoes, understand the pain she grew up with, it might make sense then. The pain that she uh, experienced at the hands of a man. <coughs> so there was uh, Ken, the quiet, passive cowboy. He was one of the guys um, that rolled through our house. He was quiet dude, cowboy, slept on the couch. Uh, there was Paul, whom we... Uh, Learned to call the pathological liar for good reasons. He had uh, bad teeth, really bad teeth. I think years of meth use, possibly. He used to say really inappropriate things about my mom. There was Bob, uh, the lumberjack, wore a flannel shirt all the time, worked for a tree removal service, had a really bad temper that he took out on my sister and I. Uh, there was Ernie. The hairy handyman. Now, this guy had hair on his back and grew up top of his shirt. So, if anybody else here is cursed with that, I'm not making fun. I'm just saying this is what you're about. <laughs> uh, he had a wife in another town, though, even though he stayed the weekends at our place. Uh, there was Marty. Uh, Marty walked with a limp. He had uh, uh, braces on his knees, on his legs, and walked with two canes, had cerebral palsy. He was a wealthy banker, though. Um, so, his. Uh, when he pursued my mom and us, let's try to buy our love with the money that he had. Uh, lastly, there was an unnamed dude. Not that he didn't have a name, I just don't know his name, don't remember his name. I honestly actually don't even know if I knew his name when he was there, to be honest with you, because uh, he was a viper outlaw with a gun. Uh, he let me shoot his gun, promised to uh, send me his gun in the mail after he left. Um, he uh, shacked up with my mom in my bedroom for a few days. So altogether, seven guys, counting my dad, then my mom, my sister, and myself. Purpose for sharing that. Now, I share all that to illustrate that I've had in my own personal growing up experience, had my own personal fair share experiences of men and women, and the roles that they played in forming me into the man that I am today. Uh, now, I also uh, have six beautiful daughters. Uh, have really one awesome stud of a son. Um, <laughs> really gorgeous wife after 24 years of relational ups and downs she's still the very best friend i have on the face of this earth i learned more from her than any other human being alive of course i do like to read dead guys like luther calvin and spurgeon so <laughs> as far as people living i've learned more from her than anybody else as a pastor, I've experienced the uh, gut-wrenching days of uh, walking through the pain of sin and abuse and abandonment that erupts when a man or a woman runs off the cliff and derails their life, derails their marriage, and derails their family. But this pain is never one-sided. For every story of a man who rejects 
or abandons his God-given responsibility, his calling to serve the woman in his life and the family he's been given. For every man, on the one hand, there's equally as many women. The playground of sin between men and women is equal. It's an equal playing field. <coughs> Satan's sin and the world, unholy trinity you might say, they do not play favorites and they do not play fair. So if you were hoping for a fair fight. That trio or that unholy trinity that I alluded, alluded to, Satan's sin in the world, they, they are an equal opportunity oppressor. We are equally responsible. You might catch the use of the word equal often today. We are equally responsible for our individual addiction to sin. We all sin in many of the same ways, and yet there are still distinctions, right? Differences between men and women. God-given differences. God-given distinctions. Those differences, those distinctions, they were never intended to be, and they are not supposed to be. Designed or meant in any way to take away from the value of each individual. Our value is not rooted in our roles. Our value is not rooted in what we are called to do, able to do, gifted to do. I simply put, biblically speaking, the role of a man is different from the role of a woman. The role of a woman is different from the role of a man. And you see this in the home primarily. There are things that my wife can do with our children that I cannot do. One of those that we will um, examine later on today is the gift that every man is prohibited from doing, and that is giving birth to children. There are things that I can do that my wife would be happy to say I can't do, and Joe is much better at that. In fact, he's called to that, and I'm not. So simply put, um, these roles of men and women, they're distinct, and they're meant to complement. Not complement with an I, but complement with an E inside. Not complement like, hey, oh, that's a nice looking hat. Not that, but complement fit together, like the Jerry Maguire movie that you all have heard me reference so often. You complete me. <laughs> so they're meant to complement one another instead of being a point of comparison or a point of competition or a point of oppression for the other gender. So I have long grieved, you all have heard me uh, talk about this often too, the broken culture that we live in, right? Where the roles of men and women have been tossed back and forth, stretched way out, abused beyond recognition. Prophets of our culture, there are prophets in our culture, music, movies, television programs, they speak loudly to us. They prophesy a message of hope to us often. Do this, you get that, right? They have preached a message of deception and oppression to both of the genders for far too long. My concern this morning is that we consume 
their message without ever questioning what it's doing to our souls and the souls of our sons and daughters. According to those three prophets, music, movies, TV programs, here's the picture in extremes because I don't have time, right? Men are brain-dead wimps who can't fight their way out of a wet paper bag. Or they're ego-driven, testosterone-filled, violent machines who are constantly pursuing more money, more power, more sex at all costs. That's just the picture we get in our popular culture. Women, again, extremes for the sake of time. Women are cute little housewives, never open their mouths to their husbands. They only exist to serve their men's needs for more money, more power, more sex, or opposite, opposite extreme. Women are power hungry, they're domineering, they're mouthy, they're working class women who live for the same pursuit, power, money, sex, with less clothing on their bodies than their male counterparts. Okay, so again, working extremes, there's lots of nuance there that we could work into, but for the sake of time. These are obviously polar extremes of what Satan, sin, and the world, at unholy trinity, through the medium of these prophets that work for them, if you would say. Music, movies, TV programs want us to swallow. And here's the thing, God's people from the very beginning, Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden, have bought and bought those lies lock, stock, and barrel. So, shame on us. Here's a phrase that you'll catch throughout the sermon. Shame on us, only say that once, I think, maybe twice. But shame on us, as one author said, I stole this from another guy because nothing's original for me. Shame on us uh, for letting the tail of the culture wag the dog of biblical truth. Shame on us for allowing the tail of the culture to wag the dog of biblical truth. Now, those two words, biblical truth, controversial in this day and age. I, it's controversial to say that the Bible teaches objective truth to topics, especially in this day and age, of things like gender roles, equality, marriage, and the value of human life. Those are four of some of the major topics in our culture. You turn on any news station right now, you listen to any Christian talk radio show, this is what you're going to hear. Not just Christian, but any other as well. These are major topics on our university campuses right now. And as soon as you quote the Bible as your source for objective truth on any of those four things, someone is going to reject what you are saying because they've experienced the abuse of that biblical truth. Now, also think, at least in my experience, that folks who reject that also want to hold on to a subjective influence of cultural reasoning, even though the culture around us abuses its own set of laws and principles too. The pot called the kettle black, right? So now on this point, uh, same author begs this question, which is fascinating. Which do you think is more likely? That the Bible is actually out of date? Or that the culture is actually out of line? Right? Which is more likely? That the Bible is out of date or that the culture is out of line? Now my answer to that is this. If the culture were in line, then the Bible would be out of date. Uh, I'm an extremist when it comes to language, so 
Forgive me if that sounds too extreme, but if the culture were in line, the Bible would be out of date. Not that God's word would be out of date. Since it seems obvious to me the culture is, has been out of line since the Garden of Eden and the Bible and the truths it teaches in regards to gender roles, equality, marriage, and the value of human life are more needed now than ever before. So again, last time I'll say this this way, shame on us for allowing the tail of the culture to wag the dog of the culture. Okay. Now flip forward and think about the culture in Ephesus. In this letter that we're reading, Paul's writing uh, to Timothy, the pastor of the Ephesian church, and the culture in Ephesus was out of line as well. It needed to be realigned if you will, with God's original alignment on this issue of gender roles. So think of this like the front tires on your car, okay? Every illustration breaks down, so bear with me. When you try to take human analogies and um, use them to illustrate what God is up to and what God wants, they'll always break down. So just follow me. One wheel, front tires of your car, one wheel is male, and the other one is female. Now they look similar in appearance, right? And their value is absolutely equal. Again, there's breakdown, but they're absolutely equal. <coughs> and when those tires got the line, when the left tire stops working and behaving like a left tire should, and when the right tire stops behaving like a right tire should, then what happens? Your car drives cattywampus, right? Wears out your tires. <coughs> The longer you let that go, the more damage it does to the tires, to the car, to the passengers in the car, not to mention other people on the roadway. Agreed? Well, this is a picture of where the Ephesian church was at in terms of gender roles. So what Paul seeks to do here is to realign those gender roles with God's original design or original alignment. I'm going to pause here and say... There's a lot here. <clears throat> we'll be here for a little while. I apologize. Well, I want to be thorough. So please hang with me. I pray this doesn't overload your mind and your heart this morning. That's my prayer. That's probably my concern. Paul is seeking to realign these gender roles with God's original design or original alignment. So what he seeks to do is he seeks to outline, uh, one, what it should look like for men and women in prayer. And then two, what it should look like for men and women in learning and teaching. And then three, what it should look like for men and women in sin and salvation. So that should be up on the slide for you uh, here in a moment. So let's start with number one, the roles of men and women in prayer. Verses 8 through 10, Paul begins his realignment sermon with the men, which I think is appropriate when he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray living holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, the simple truth here is this. Men should pray everywhere. So should women, right? But men should pray everywhere. That there isn't a designated place to pray. Every place is the place to pray. And the posture of prayer matters here too. So Paul describes the posture of prayer as a posture of uplifted, uh, surrendered, humble, holy hands instead of angry fists of rage and argument. We men love to argue. Bring up just about any topic that we love to argue about. We got stats about our favorite football teams and so on and so forth. We love to argue. 
I'm reminded here that James says in James 1.20 that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, human anger doesn't make a wrong thing right. Even the most righteous of human anger is still tainted with human sin, therefore can never produce the pure rightness that God desires. That's why we have the cross of Christ. James also moves on, if you're going to continue looking at James as a support for this. He says, hey, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Like, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The things you're passionate about, that's what's at war among you. You desire, you want, right? You want. And you do not have, so you murder. So think about, you want something, get angry, you don't have it, so you murder. Unjust anger, Jesus says, is the same as murder. So the penalty is what? Somebody tell me what the penalty for that sin is. Death. Death. Level playing field. You desire, you not have, so you murder, you moves on, you covet, right? You see what everybody else has. Somebody has a good marriage, somebody has good kids, somebody has a better job, somebody's got a better paycheck, somebody's got a better truck, whatever it may be. You want what somebody else has really, really bad, and you can't get it, right? You covet, cannot obtain, so what do you do? You fight and you quarrel, he says. I love James. One of these days we're going to go back through, re-preach through James, redeem that series. Not redeem the book, it's already redeemed. redeemed. You do not have because you do not ask. This is where James then shifts into prayer. You don't have something because you don't ask for it. And you ask, and you don't receive it because you ask wrongly. That's not a double out, right? It's like, geez, Louise, first you get me for not asking, then you get me for asking the wrong way. But what does it look like to ask the wrong way? He moves on, he says, you ask to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Oh, James, James is so good with this. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God or war with God? Men are called to pray everywhere with humble, surrendered hands instead of fists of selfishly motivated fury and anger and fighting. And to ignore what God is saying here is to allow the tail of the culture to wag the dog of biblical truth. To ignore what God is saying here is to allow the tail of the culture to wag the dog of biblical truth. Now, men aren't the only ones with issues when it comes to prayer. Women have issues too. So Paul addresses the women next by saying, likewise, also, those two words, likewise, also, those are connecting words to what he's previously said. It lets us know that he's continuing in the same topic, the same theme, prayer. Likewise, also, I'm going to talk about prayer. I'm going to talk about prayer with you. Focus on the men, now focus on the women. Okay, so likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. There's a lot packed into that instruction, but the simple teaching here is this. A woman should spend more time being concerned with her godly character and prayer than her physical appearance in the mirror. A woman should spend more time being concerned with her godly character in prayer than her physical appearance in the mirror. Paul is not making a prohibition or a restriction of wearing nice clothing, make yourself look presentable for a church gathering or any other gathering for that matter. He is, however, encouraging and instructing women not to copy the pop culture habits of spending excessive amounts of time, talent, and treasure on skimpy clothing, expensive hairdos, or a sexual or seductive appearance. One author, in commenting on this, said it best, I think, this way. He says, a woman who loves to be noticed must remember with whom she is competing. God is the one who ought to be the object of our attention and affection. Mm -hmm. So a profession of godliness 
by a man or a woman. This be backed up with the good works of godliness that are characterized by holiness and humility and respect and modesty and self-control. So again, to ignore what God is saying here is to allow the tail of the culture to wag the dog of biblical truth. The question is, which side of this is your heart on this morning? Will you allow God's word to realign your heart on this issue? Secondly, the roles of men and women in learning and teaching, verses 11 through 13. This is where our passage takes a super controversial turn. This is where we're going to spend both of our time this morning, too. Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. You may take a deep breath and then let it out real quick while I take a drink. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for praying for me. This I appreciate. Uh, These verses are shocking at first, are they not? They're shocking at first. They, they, They are repulsive. I'll just say it that way. They come across very repulsive. I admit, even for me, after years of studying the Bible, after years of holding to what, what most would call a complementarian view of the gender roles, when I read this passage, I am tempted at first, just skip bad day, okay? Dude had a bad day, skim on by. Problem with that attitude, if you know me well, um, I, it's prideful, but I, Love the Bible, and I am—I think what some would call biblicist. Uh, I—if I, I had that attitude that, that Paul just had a bad day, I'm just going to skip right on by it. Um, then what I'm doing is I'm dismissing God's authoritative word, and I cannot dismiss God's authoritative word just because I don't like what it says. Because as soon as I start doing that here, I'm going to do that elsewhere. Because there's a lot in God's word that actually really does offend me. And if God's word hasn't offended you recently, I might just say, like, maybe, maybe your heart's not in the right place, right? So, I do not want to ignore what God is saying here. I do not want to allow the tale of the culture to wipe the dog of biblical truth. Now, some people in their um, commentary on this passage will try to dismiss or minimize what Paul is saying here in regards to gender roles. They, they chalk it up to some unique cultural issue in Ephesus. That's just unique to there, not the same to here. Um, They might also say, you know, it's just a temporary restriction. It wasn't a permanent restriction. Might relegate what he's saying down to some outdated form of uh, male chauvinism or patriarchal tradition. And here's the problem. A close examination of what Paul is actually saying here, I think, reveals something altogether beautiful, altogether redemptive about the roles of men and women in the church as it pertains to learning and teaching. So if you would, I I sense in some ways, I'm not trying to hang most of my pastoral credibility and uh, influence and trust on the line to go here with us. So that's the way I feel. Um, If you'd hang with me and, and examine this carefully with me, my prayer is that like good Bereans that we should all be, that you might find that uh, God's word is saying something really good here. It's fascinating, I think, actually. First thing Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I'm going to be a little bit reactionary. Uh, What can this possibly mean? At first glance, this verse seems to be offensive to my modern sensibilities. Seems like 
Paul is coming across really chauvinistic. I'm, I mean, when I read it, I'm like, really, Paul? Are, are you flipping crazy? Right? That's, that's kind of where I'm at when I, I first read it. Let a woman learn quietly and submissively? Who do you think you are, Paul? Right? Like, um, uh, who are you to give women the permission to learn? Um, why are you telling women to be quiet and submissive? Single. Single. <laughs> might, might be a reason Paul was single. <laughs> my, my, my question is like, don't you know the powder keg you're igniting here? I would submit that the problem here isn't with what Paul is actually saying. The problem here is with what we hear. Okay. The problem here is with what we hear. Our hearing is influenced by the tone of voice we hear. And the tone of voice we hear is heavily influenced by the culture we live in. We must not allow the tail of the culture to wag the dog of the culture. We read this and it's easy for us to hear a tone of restriction rather than redemption. And I, I, want, I want you to see that there's redemption in this. There's so much redemption in what Paul's saying here. That's why this one makes us fascinating. Good to note, maybe at this point, too, um, that in the Ephesian culture, this is really important. Uh, women were not allowed, and I'm not speaking about the church necessarily, but the entire culture probably included the church to some degree. In the Ephesian culture, women were not allowed to learn alongside the men. But there were two basic cultures that made up the city of Ephesus. There was the, there was the pagan Roman culture, that Ephesus was built on. Uh, and then there was the Jewish religious culture, which was probably the dominant religion outside of paganism. Both of those cultures had relegated the centers for learning, your universities and so on and so forth, um, down to the men only. Now, there was even one Jewish rabbi who said that it would be better for the scriptures to be burned rather than to allow a woman to learn alongside a man. So, that, so when Paul writes this, he's writing into that culture. It should not be hard for us, even in our culture today, to understand the weight of that and to even see connections to that in our culture in America today, right? Like we're probably in a much different place for sure, but we still see this happen. The Me Too movement is probably one of those proofs. Agreed? So what Paul is actually doing here is very redemptive because he's saying that women are expected to learn right alongside the men. So Paul is not allowing the tail of the culture to wag the dog of biblical truth. Paul is actually being counter-culturally biblical in what he's saying. And in fact, I think if we had time to support this throughout the Bible, I think I guarantee you that we would find that God has expected the same equality for men and women, when it comes to learning all along, throughout all the Bible, virtually every passage of Scripture that teach us to apply ourselves to the learning of God's Word apply to both men and women alike. The expectation here is that women should pursue the highest levels of theological education right alongside any man. The story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10. I think it's just one really solid place to read this. 
Now, the other problem that we have with our hearing on this verse is two little words that Paul uses to describe the posture of a woman when she is learning, right? He says that a woman is to learn quietly and submissively. Again, I'm like, what the heck are you thinking, right? Uh, do you not know how offensive those two words sound? Tell a woman she needs to learn quietly and submissively? Give me some latitude. I think the key here is that there seems to be an obvious connection to me to Paul's teaching on submission from Ephesians 5. We must always remember that the context of the word submission in Ephesians 5 is a wife submitting to her husband who is also submitted to Christ. It's mutual submission. Within the church, it's mutual submission. Wives submit to husbands as we submit to Christ. Church members submit to one another as we submit to Christ. Church members submit to church leaders as we submit to Christ. And church leaders submit to church members as we submit to Christ. The big idea is mutual submission, not abuse. Not abuse. Furthermore, come back to the context of learning. Sure, it's shocking to hear Paul say, women, you can learn quietly and submissively. Um, but can I just say that men learn the same way? Like, that didn't seem so obvious to me when I first was reading this passage because I was so shocked by it. But men have to learn the same way. Like, no man who can't shut his trap can actually sit under a teacher and learn, right? <laughs> so men must be quiet and submissive to learn. One of my deep joys is being quiet and submissive and learning from others, too. I love it because it puts me in a place of need and receiving from others. So it follows that Paul would require the same kind of posture with the women. Please do not take what I said about shutting your trap and apply that to women. Because I would say that to men because I'm rough on the men. I would never say that to a woman. So I pray that you get that. For some reason that just came back to me. It's either my own insecurities or the Holy Spirit. So if anybody heard that, please hear that differently. <laughs> Gently. Okay. Because the next part we're going to is where it gets controversial, right? The next part of the text um, kind of really blows up here. Um, this is the center of the controversy, I think. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. So why does Paul say he doesn't allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man? Why does he instruct women to remain quiet again? And I think the answer is found in the meaning of the word teach on the one hand, the meaning of the phrase exercise authority on the other hand, in the context of what Paul is writing and is about to write about. Okay, Teaching, exercise authority in context. Um, so I'm not really going to focus on the word quiet because we're already focused on that. For some reason, Paul's just doubling down and saying it twice. Like sometimes I do this with my kids. Like, be quiet, be quiet. I think that's all he's doing there. So first, the meaning of the word teach, I believe, uh, the, my study, that the word teach is connected <coughs> to the same use of the word teach in the closest context in Scripture, which is in the following verses, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Okay. It's the closest place that you find that word again. Same author, same church, same context, same letter. So when you use context to interpret what you're reading, 
That context, 3, 1 through 7, regards the role and duties of an elder. According to that section of scripture, an elder must be able to teach. Further on, if you look at the qualifications of deacons, it's the one thing that deacons are not required to do. They're not required to teach. But an elder is required to teach, again, same use of the word here with the women. Okay? So an elder must be able to teach. And in the verses we're looking at here, in verses 12 through 13, I think Paul is attaching that word teach with that phrase, exercise authority. So the way that I would render it then is to teach, preach with authority. Uh, so when connected to the context of an elder, then the phrase takes on a meaning of responsibility, right? It's responsibility. Authority means responsibility, and with great power comes great responsibility. I think this means that elders have been given the authority or the responsibility to oversee and shepherd the flock through the preaching and the teaching of God's word. Because according to the Bible, in Chapter 3, verse 2, of the same letter, same context, an elder is a man, a husband of one wife. You can't get around that, again, unless you make it temporal and not eternal. But I think you're going to see here in a minute why I think it's eternal. And those elders have a responsibility and authority to teach, preach the word of God, to gather the assembly of the church family. So authority, responsibility that Paul is forbidding here, verse 12, appears to be the regular ongoing, authoritative preaching and teaching of the word of God to the church family as a whole. Why? Because this responsibility belongs to the elders. And this interpretation, I think, again, you want to attach this to eternity. If, if this part of the text wasn't here, I think it would be harder. When Paul draws our attention to the God-ordained order of responsibility and authority from the beginning where Adam was formed first, then Eve, I think that makes that makes this whole thing make clear sense. If that short little line wasn't there, I think it'd be hard. But because that's there, I think it gives us the eternal feeling, not the temporal feeling. He draws it back to the beginning. So, in bringing our attention to the order of responsibility and authority at the beginning, what he also does is brings our attention to the reversal of that order in Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. We're going to touch on that more in a moment. But again, this helps to underscore what I said earlier about male and female roles being like wheels on a car. They're out of alignment. Culture has been out of line since the beginning. To ignore what God is saying here is to allow the tail of the culture to wag the dog of biblical truth. Okay. Paul is not concerned with women using their gifts of teaching in the church family. Please hear that, ladies and men. He is not concerned with women using their gifts of teaching in the church family. Apollos, in the book of Acts, chapter 18, obviously as a man, learned from Aquila and Priscilla, husband and wife duo. Paul listed women in his company who no doubt had gifts of teaching. Furthermore, men throughout the Bible, throughout the ages, have learned much from women with the gift of teaching. If you're a man here and you have not learned from a woman, then you, I think, your learning is incomplete. There's a certain way that God wires women, much differently than men, that we need. I have been the beneficiary of being taught by my wife, even on this topic. She was such a gift to me over the last four or five weeks as she went and did some study on her own. 
and began to come with me to me with some of her ideas. And I'll be honest with you, she's more conservative than I am on this issue in many ways. And I'm so, it's a safe place for me to be in, obviously, right? So um, that's such a blessing to learn from a woman. I've been the beneficiary of being taught by my wife, by my daughters who are younger than me. Many of the women in our church family, to hear the ladies from the stage at times share God's word with us during worship and times of prayer. And in gospel community, if you haven't, man, if you've heard a woman speak authoritatively in a gospel community in a way that is humble and, and instructs you and encourages you, and I've been so challenged that way. I expect this to be the norm, not the exception in our church family. And I think Paul expected the same in the Ephesian church. Now, it's a final thought. I'm rolling lawn here. Knew we would. Final thought on this section, this point. We'll say the survey of other key passages like 1 Corinthians 14, Titus 2, 1 Peter 3, Proverbs 31. Those passages, I believe, paint a beautiful picture of biblical womanhood that I pray the women of the well would continue to embrace and grow into. And listen, it's not that I don't see this happening. I actually do see the Lord forming many of you ladies into some of the godliest women that I know. I'm, I'm proud to be running the race with you. Proud to be learning from you. I want you to hear the voice of the Father in this one thing. I don't own this either. My friend Chris and I had this conversation today that you ladies are beautiful, loved, and treasured. Would you please hear those three words well? You are beautiful, loved, and treasured. Our, our Savior is restoring, realigning the image of Christ in you. You exemplify the beauty of Christ. You have been lavished by the love of Christ. And the cross of Christ has made you more treasured than all of the silver and all the gold and every possession you could possibly ever have. You are beautiful, loved, and treasured, and I love you ladies a whole bunch. And I'm really proud to call you my sisters in Christ. And I am thankful for the ways that I see you not ignoring what God is saying here, not allowing the tail of the culture to wag the dog of biblical truth. I can't imagine what it's like to be in your shoes and try to live out these truths. So I love you and I'm proud of you. Okay. Number three. The roles of men and women in sin and salvation, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing. And if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now we can spend a ton more time here, obviously, let me be as brief as I can. I want you to shift gears in your head, if you can, to the original order of creation, okay? Original order of creation, Genesis 2 and 3, God creates Adam first, agree? Next thing that happens, roughly, in the order that I'm writing down, is he tells Adam, goes to Adam, he says, hey, do, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Okay? And then after that, what does he do? He creates Eve. So <clears throat> catch that. Where was Eve when God was giving this command to Adam? Eve wasn't there yet. 
So God then creates Eve. What happens after that? The serpent comes, begins to tempt who? <coughs> begins to tempt Eve. Now where is Adam? He's standing right next to his wife, silently. You see the reversal of the order? A man had the responsibility to speak the truth of God's word to protect the woman in his life, and he abdicated it. From that point forward, all of the world has been out of alignment. Now you might remember too, Paul says it this way, he says, Eve was deceived, Adam wasn't, right? So in all of this, what we see is Eve is deceived, but what's happening with Adam? He's willfully disobedient in his silence. He knew what he was supposed to do. Eve becomes a transgressor through deception, and Adam becomes a transgressor through willful disobedience. Now, last thing that's important to know, when God came into the garden right after this, who did he call out for? Adam, where are you? He's calling out to the men. He said, Adam, where are you? What did Adam do? He bored He's like, the woman you gave me, it's her fault. Man, you have to track with me on this, right? Isn't it easy for us to think that our wives are the enemy? And then he goes to Eve, and what did Eve do? The serpent, the rest of your creations, became and tempted me. And all of this, I think God was relating to humanity in his original created order of responsibility. Adam first, Eve second. It was a tragic day. The wheels on the car of humanity got out of line. And from that point forward, our culture has been in need of a realignment. So in this passage and in this sermon today, I believe God is calling us to no longer allow the tail of the culture to wag the dog of biblical truth. Listen, through the first Adam came sin. And through the second Adam came redemption. Thankfully, now there's a promise that comes later in Genesis 3. The salvation from Satan's sin in the grave will be made possible through the pain of a woman giving birth to a child. This is fascinating. This is so beautiful, so redemptive. God literally planned from the beginning to make a way for us to stop allowing the tail of the culture to wag the dog of biblical truth. And the way that God planned this out is absolutely fascinating in context of this passage. Think about it. A woman is able to do what Every man is prohibited from doing. And that's the gift of giving birth to a child. Not all women have been able to do that. Yet no man will ever be able to do that. In this case, it's the birth of a child who would redeem all of God's children. Mary submitted to the plan of her father in heaven. So that her father in heaven could realign the wheels of creation through the pain of childbirth. Mary did what no man could ever do so that Jesus could do what no other human, regardless of gender, could ever do. That's the point. 
Because through this, both men and women are given the equal opportunity to become children of God and live in faith, love, and holiness and self-control. So in conclusion, God is seeking to realign the gender roles through like two front tires on call. What he says here in this passage, it's hard to accept because of our cultural misalignment. We must not let the tail of the culture wag the dog of biblical truth. And the question is, will you hear this word as a realignment process for your heart? Will you allow God's word to realign your heart? Now, my preparation for this sermon, uh, I sensed the need to do a number of things. One was for you to hear from me and my personal story. The other was to be faithful to the text. And the other was for all of us to hear words from our Father. I know that I have a unique responsibility in that, but I felt like it, I was supposed to share that responsibility. And that's part of the reason that we're going to go a little bit long today. And I pray that God uses us to bless you. I felt like it was important to have a, another man come and encourage the ladies of the well with some words from our Father. And then to have a woman come and encourage the men of the well with some words from our Father as well. So Micah's going to come here in just a second, and he's going to read to you a letter of encouragement that he feels the Father has given him for our women. And then as soon as he's done, Steph Shade is going to come, and she's going to share the same, uh, a letter that she's written that she believes is it's a word from our Father to the men of our congregation. As soon as they're done with that, then I'll be back up. And one final note, too. When our service is over, uh, both of them, Micah and Steph, have hard copies of those letters. If you would like to grab a hard copy and take it home with you, we just want to encourage you to do that. And so I'll turn it over to Micah, and then Steph will come after him, and then I'll come after that. <laughs> uh, just to start off, I just want you guys to know that like, my voice, it, <laughs> I don't know, I just kind of tremble when I just feel that the Spirit really wants to speak. And so, I'm going to just fight through it for you guys, and, uh, yeah. Um, from a father's love to the, to the women of the well. <clears throat> from the unspoken hearts of the men here in Ellis Credit, and your all-loving father, whom you fight to hear from, I pray God has touched your heart in this moment and would every day from here on. This is written to each individually as a reminder, a newness, <clears throat> an encouragement, and hope to whatever sphere of your life that is damaged and broken. Still healing, or yet still scarred. Um, we speak wholeness and purity over it that is cared for and not forgotten. Also, I can't see very good with these glasses. <laughs> uh, yeah, through Jesus, you are made righteous. You are pure. You are whole. You are not alone. You are heard. You are acknowledged. And you are seen. You are not fatherless. You are sought after and fought for. And that is not a one-time thing. It's a constant thing. You are needed and you are loved. Your value. You teach us things we would otherwise never figure out. How to be gentle, how to slow down, how to take in, and how to be loved in so many things. 
there is one thing that we can all grow in, but I, <clears throat> the greatest thing I learned from a woman is how to serve. <laughs> to serve well and with love. If it weren't for you, us men are unable to understand or to experience perhaps the most integral part of all our Father's love and serving. Yeah. We are all one in Christ. <laughs> we men are thankful for you and look to you in many ways. After all, you complete God's beauty and creation. Philippians 1 6. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in me will perfect it until the day of Christ. Amen. Thank you for that word. That was really beautiful. And now I get to go. Dear brothers in the Lord, I don't envy you. We are living in an age in which humanity is experiencing a major sexual identity crisis. Stories of large-scale abuse and cover-ups in business and in government, in Hollywood, in the church dominate the headlines. Schools, colleges, businesses, and sports organizations struggle with how to handle the massive upheaval in gender identity. For the first time in history, we are not given two but at least three choices when asked to identify our sex, male, female, and other. That is madness. Mm -hmm. Now don't misunderstand me. The church must be a safe place for the gender confused and the sexually broken, because if we aren't, then we don't really know the Jesus that we claim as Savior. Mm -hmm. But we must learn what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, and we must hold fast to that truth if we are going to be salt and light to a confused and hurting world. So what does it mean to be a man? When that question is answered rightly, humanity flourishes. Any study of humankind will tell us that where men are absent, where wives are deserted, where children are left fatherless, and men have retreated from their responsibilities to feed their own selfish desires, society crumbles. However, where men are present, engaged, fulfilling the biblical roles and responsibilities for which God created them, then humankind will flourish. As I said, men, I don't envy you. The role God has created for you is huge, and your responsibilities are great. So much depends on your knowing and your fulfilling your position that if you took too much time to think about it, the weight of it might crush you. But in Christ, there is always good news, and the good news here grace. Where you stumble, you will come face to face with the God whose power is made perfect in your weakness. So to answer the question, what does it mean to be a man, we need to look to the one who created man and who designed manhood. In Genesis 1, verse 27, he says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This verse, this verse describes what is known as the Imago Dei. Men and women have been created in the image of God and are therefore unique among creation. We are, in fact, the crown jewel of creation. We are the image bearers of God and have been made his representatives on earth. The Imago Dei means humans have the ability to seek God and have relationship with him. 
It means we have dominion over the created order. It means we have an intrinsic value given to us that no other creature has. This concept, this concept that we as humans bear the image of our maker has been under attack since the beginning. Where Imago Dei is not understood or respected, humanity suffers. Pornography, prostitution, racism, genocide, abortion, sex trafficking, slavery, these are all assaults on the Imago Dei. When we view human beings as less than God created them to be, when we start to see them as objects to consume in order to feed our selfishness, the Imago Dei is assaulted, and it will always be the weak and the vulnerable who suffer at the hands of the strong, and namely that is women and children. Where men are absent in their roles, humanity is devastated. So what is this role that God created for man? Oftentimes, a man's role is defined by the expectation that he be, that he be the leader at his home, a leader at work, a leader in church. And this is true. Men are called to lead. But the problem with centering the definition around, of manhood around the concept of leadership is that on many occasions, women are called to lead as well. And women can be really good at it. The Bible is full of examples of women taking a vital role in God's work. So brothers, I would encourage you to look at this God-given role for man from a position of headship. Headship involves leadership for sure. But it also means creating and fostering an environment in which humankind can flourish. Sometimes that means leading from the front of the line. Sometimes it means providing support so someone else can lead. Sometimes it's offering encouragement, time, and service so that another can grow in love. Jesus is the ultimate example of biblical headship. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, as in Philippians 2. So let me speak to you from my heart for a moment. I believe God has given me gifts in teaching and a few leadership skills, but for years I struggled with how to exercise these gifts in church because I'm married to a man who is gracious and who is kind and who's not interested in dominating me, I didn't feel fulfilled at home, and I felt fulfilled at work because my job was to teach and to lead. Church, however, was a struggle. I did not understand how to be who God made me without stepping on the toes of the men in leadership, and I didn't want to be guilty of going outside the role that God created for me as a woman. So the struggle left me discouraged and unfulfilled and questioning how God could use me outside my home and family. But the Lord heard the cry of my heart and saw my frustration. And in his time, he led me into a new situation. The men who were my overseers began to create space for me, space in which I was free to discover how God wired me. Then they granted me space in which I could try out my ideas, follow the calling God laid on my heart, and lead out in a way that I wasn't able to before. Now, I feel like I'm flourishing in my gifts. My husband is supportive of me, he encourages me, and he sacrifices his time so that I'm free to use mine in ministry. My pastor is enthusiastic, enthusiastic and generous and gives freely the resources at his disposal so that ministry can happen. What I have found is that when men exercise biblical headship by supporting, by encouraging, and by speaking life into the women of the church, those women can flourish in their gifts, knowing that they have the protection and the covering of their brothers. But biblical headship isn't confined to the church. Men are called to headship in all areas of life, at home, in church, and in society at large. 
Look at Ephesians 5, 25 through 31. Husbands, <laughs> long time. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might be present, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. <coughs> Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Husbands are called to cultivate headship at home by loving their wives sacrificially. A husband is for his wife not exercising domination over her. He's willing to help her, work for her, sacrifice for her. He sets the spiritual climate in the home by centering conversations with his wife and children around God's goodness. He teaches his children. He prays for them. He leads them in devotions. He provides for his family, both physically and spiritually. He works hard, first at his job, and then at home, and he goes to bed tired. <clears throat> he identifies the spiritual gifts of his wife, and he works to strengthen her in the Lord. He is wrong for the good of his family, for the glory of God, and his family flourishes. I had coffee with a good friend of mine yesterday morning. <clears throat> Her husband has recently embarked on a spiritual journey that has transformed him. He was challenged at a retreat and then in a subsequent Bible study to put away his phone except for work purposes, to stop watching TV, and to spend some serious time in God's Word. He took the challenge seriously, and his family life is flourishing like never before. He is emotionally available to his wife and his children. He has freed up time to be a husband and a father who is present and involved. Now make no mistake, life is not utopia at their house. Their family is walking through some of the most challenging and trying circumstances that they have faced in their 20 plus years of marriage. But in the midst of the storm that has descended on their house, the husband's commitment to biblical headship is yielding some of the most intimate and impactful times in their married life. I heard a scenario once that I found powerful. Husbands, if the most radical, secularist feminist in the world showed up on your doorstep and began to coach your wife towards freedom and liberation from your tyranny, how would your wife respond? Is she so well cared for, so nourished, so sewed into, so loved that she could say, I love where I am. I'm honored, I'm encouraged. My husband sacrifices so that I might grow in my gifts. He lays down his own desires in order to serve me better, and he pours into our children. He encourages me, he builds me up in love. The lifestyle that you're describing? That sounds like tyranny. Mm -hmm. So brothers, what if your wife wouldn't necessarily respond that way? Remember, there is grace for all the times that we fail. Confess your sin before God, lean into the cross, and start again. And I promise you, it will be awkward. <laughs> sometimes praying with my husband is totally awkward, and sometimes it's totally amazing. But we wouldn't have got to the amazing times if we hadn't pressed in through all the awkward ones. I also promise you that you will feel unrewarded. 
If you were going to be a fly on the wall during our family devotions, you would swear that we had no control. Like kids are rolling over one another and they're fighting with each other and food's flying across the table and then the doorbell rings and then the dog starts barking and then the neighbor gets tramped through the kitchen. And then if we tried to pray while holding hands, forget it. <laughs> but for all that craziness, we have seen actual spiritual growth in our children. And we know that God's grace is picking up where we are falling desperately short. So men, step into that awkward space and do what is uncomfortable and sometimes seemingly pointless and leave the results to a God who creates beauty from ashes. Now just a note to single men. You too are called to biblical headship. You completely image God in your singleness. You don't need to be married to be the image of God. But your challenge is to think biblically of women and to push against the stereotypes of women as mere sexual creatures or servants put here for your pleasure and comfort. God calls you to treasure women as your sisters and co-heirs of the kingdom. Single men fulfill biblical, biblical headship by serving and protecting women as sisters, by seriously pursuing godly women in friendship relationships in order that one day they might marry, to partner in ministry, and to raise godly children. Our culture will tell you to focus on physical attraction, but in a good friendship, godliness is attractive, and attraction grows as iron sharpens iron. Your sisters in Christ should set high expectations from you. Work to meet them and exceed those expectations. And when they don't, then teach them what it means to be respected and treasured so that their view of themselves will begin to more closely align with God's view of them. Again, my brothers, I don't envy you, but I thank God for you. Your worth is immeasurable. Your influence is profound. Your role is indispensable. And when it is done well, your fulfillment of that role will forever impact the kingdom. Thank you for stepping into that role and for not being too intimidated to try. We, your sisters, love you and we are for you. And we want to use our role and our gifts to help you succeed. And we will be there for you every step of the way doing our best to be there in the ways you need us to be, to God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the gifts that you've given us. Father, just, just in the gift of uh, men and women in our church family who can speak so well from your heart to ours share so faithfully your image to us and your desires to each of us Father we ask that you would continue to realign our hearts with your original design on the cross of Christ we thank you for giving Jesus for us you're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.